Welcome to the Story Talks Back. Almost everything that we remember, think about, or imagine is a story. Stories entertain us, inform us, and even define us. They have upsides, and they have downsides. This podcast explores the power of story in every aspect of our lives. I'm Dave Stanton. Thank you for joining us. Julie Lithcott Hames is a writer, teacher, speaker, mentor, and activist who believes in humans and is deeply interested in what gets in our way. She is the New York Times bestselling author of How to Raise an Adult, which gave rise to a TED Talk that has been viewed over 8 million times. Her award-winning prose poetry memoir, Real American, powerfully illustrates her experience as a black and biracial person in white spaces. And earlier this year, Lithcott Hames published Your Turn, a groundbreakingly frank guide to adulthood. Lithcott Hames holds degrees from Stanford, Harvard Law, and California College of the Arts. She currently serves on the boards of Common Sense Media, Black Women's Health Imperative, Narrative Magazine, and on the board of trustees at California College of the Arts. Lithcott Hames lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with her partner of over 30 years, their itinerant young adults, and her mother. Well, thank you so much, Julie, for joining me on the Story Talks Back. I really appreciate your time today. Pleasure to be with you, Dave. Thanks so much for the invitation. Yeah. Uh, So we always start our interviews by talking about stories and storytellers in your past. So in your childhood, your formative years. Can you think about any particular stories that were really important to you or storytellers who may have influenced you that you can remember? My mother is from the north of England, uh, the region known as Yorkshire, and she infused my childhood with a lot of stories about an era spoken in a language around day-to-day activities that were very different from my own. So even though they were my mother's real life lived stories, they felt at times like fables or like mythical adventures. Um, My father was born in the Jim Crow South and he too had his stories of a childhood that did not resemble mine in any way. So when you ask the question, those are the first two uh, voices that come to mind, that of my mother and my father, who both had a gift with language. My mother is still alive. She still has a gift with language and um, their capacity to uh, look back and uh, retell a tale of a lived experience with gusto and enthusiasm um, really was uh, an important aspect of my childhood, a a memorable one. And you brought up kind of immediately the the fact that you had this two very separate kind of histories behind you, you know, your mother's and your father's different stories, different probably ways of telling stories. I mean, what, what has been your journey to understand your own story and sort of concoct your own way of telling stories? 
the first thought that comes to mind is I've, I think I've, without knowing it, I've always been interested in language. Um, I now write, so it's obvious that I care about language, but I'm 53 and I didn't claim the identity writer until I was 44. Um, but I had gone to law school at 24 and um, you can't be a lawyer if you don't like language. Um, and I was a theater kid going back to high school, even elementary school. Right. And so I think I've, I've always appreciated the way that we can uh, wield language to craft compelling stories. Um, and now I've forgotten the premise of the original question. <laughs> Sorry. Um, just how you sort of found your way to your own yeah. stories or storytelling. Right. So I knew that I was interested in, I, I now know looking back that I've been so interested in language um, and yet my own sense of self, um, my own sense of myself as the narrator of a story or the main character within it was very, um, is new. I, I squelched the stories that uh, were wanting to be told because I was embarrassed by my story. I was ashamed of my story. I was um, trying to fit someone else's narrative. And um, so I didn't feel that my own experience was, was valid or interesting or important or even really that I wanted to claim it as mine. I had a performative story. I had the, you know, here's what I've accomplished. Here's where I've gone to school. Here's here's how I matter, but these were um, not, these were, um, I'm gonna use a term, I don't mean to offend anybody. These were fictions. I'm a nonfiction writer and I could tell you the fiction of my life, um, but I wasn't inhabiting a nonfiction space around my own story until my my, for, my 40s. And I mean, you know, it seems like as a biracial person, you were always searching for a story in the culture that fit you. And does that sound right or no? Yeah, my first thought is I identify actually as black and biracial, just wanted to clarify that. I, biracial is a factual aspect of my upbringing or my ancestry, but I, I identify as black. But yes, locating um, a self within our American racial construct um, was really challenging. I was an oddity in every landscape I inhabited until I moved out to the San Francisco Bay Area in the 80s. I just had not had the opportunity to see people with skin color and hair like mine on a regular basis. And so I was, I was on the margins. I was, um, I was, uh, I was really unfamiliar with how to be someone like me. Mm. And it's interesting because you describe your father in the book as being the protagonist. Yeah. You say that about him. And it seems so much in contrast to how you felt as almost a victim in a way or, or someone who was forgotten. Forgotten, I think, is the better term. I'm, I'm, I haven't chosen either, um, but I appreciate that that is your interpretation. And I, I, I appreciate your seeing the depths of both of those possibilities. Um, somebody reviewed Real American when it first came out. I think it was George Anders and Forbes who said, this book is a love letter to your father. And I, I hadn't seen it that way until the review came out. 
Um, but I do use the language that daddy was the protagonist, the lead, daddy was the son. And right. I, I did feel that um, whatever I was experiencing was unseen, um, un, not understood or under understood by my own parents. They seemed oblivious to the problematic nature of being mixed race, biracial, a child of a black person, a white person in the decades in which I was coming up. They knew it at a, um, they knew the discourse around it, the tragic mulatto trope. What, what's gonna happen to the kids was very much in their consciousness and the nation's consciousness, but as a matter of parenting, they didn't attend to that. So if it is potentially problematic to be the child of these two people, what are we going to do by way of our choices to uh, help this child thrive? I think they thought they were attending to it. They thought it was all about get a good education, work as hard as you can, prove that you are not some uh, stereotype but rather that you prove that you are a flourishing person who deserves to be treated with dignity and kindness. And I think I, I understand what they were going for, but they, they overlooked how important it is that um, a child of color um, be raised around people who look like them with mentors who look like them so that when society air quotes does the bad thing in the form of the person who writes the n-word on your locker at school or um hurls a slur at you or what have you there's a safety net there's a psychological safety net present in the form of other humans who have lived it and get it my parents didn't engage with me at that level about my actual lived experience and um therefore i i did in hindsight, to use your language, feel that um, that that my what I was going through was unobserved or forgotten. And your mother actually very consciously tried to say that we are a black family. She she really tried to adopt that as kind of a model or something something that you could hang on to, and it didn't feel quite right it felt very inauthentic to me because my, my earliest memory of her saying this is when I was seven. And I'll tell you the brief story, if I may. Um, sure. um, uh, we were in, living in Rockland County, New York, a town called Sneedon's Landing, Palisades, New York. I was seven, the doorbell rang, mom and I were home. And again, mom is my white parent. Um, and she answered the door and I was standing behind her as kids sometimes do when a parent opens the door, the kid is in that liminal space between uh, the, the, the porch and the inside of the house, you know, sort of protected by the parent's body peeking out. And it was a pair of Mormon missionaries. And it was the first time I had seen any kind of missionary come to our house from any religion. And they announced who they were. And my mother said, we are a black family. I don't think you have anything for us. And they smiled and agreed with her, shook their head and walked away. <laughs> and this would have been, if I was seven, uh, it would have been um, 1975. Probably I would turn eight late in 1975. So this is the 
early 70s, before the Mormon leader had decided that God will now accept Black men as priests. So this was in a an era of, of racial um, subjugation or um, second-class status for Black people in the Mormon church. And my mother knew it, and she was not about to let these people think otherwise. So this was my, this was my mother declaring to these two white men with her white self, with me behind her at her hip, we are a black family. It was such talk about allyship. My God, to use a term from the present moment, my mother was showing up and speaking her mind. And I'm proud of her for doing that. And yet seven-year-old me already knew that black was problematic. I already knew from the looks in the eyes of strangers when they saw my daddy, that there was real hatred for daddy that didn't apply to mommy. And it didn't take a lot of instances for me to connect the dots and, and really reduce it down to race. So I was curious, why is my white mother claiming blackness? Why is she saying we are a black family instead of lifting me and daddy up and out of this pit? It appears we are in of blackness. Why can't she lift us with her whiteness? Why can't she use her whiteness almost as a lever? This was my seven-year-old um, thought process. Um, why is she claiming an identity that clearly is problematic? And why is she not rescuing us? Um, and um, the older I got, the more I saw her trying to really inhabit this identity of we're a black family. I'm married to a black man. I have a, I have a mixed race child. Um, I began to resent. I knew the effort was well-intended, but it felt to me performative. And I, here I was dealing with the day-to-day, -day, the questions I would get and the the ways in which I was denied opportunity and mean things happen. And I, I couldn't see the connection between what my mother was trying to do and my lived experience. So it felt performative and I grew to really resent it by the time I was a teenager. Now, the last thing I have to say is my mother, who I said was, is from Yorkshire, England, very, a, a very white person, spent formative years, seven formative years in West Africa from age 22 to 29. She taught, um, people, nursing students in Ghana, in West Africa. She met my African-American father there. They married there. They moved to Nigeria where he was heading up a smallpox eradication program. And they, I was born there. My mother, in other words, came of age and really was embraced in her identity formation by the people of Ghana, by the people of Nigeria. So she did very authentically feel a love of black and brown people, a connection to the African diaspora. And it wasn't until she came to the United States with me and my father in 1969 that she experienced American racism for the first time and then had to consciously decide, okay, what, what steps do I take here to try to um, mold our family, um, character and, um, you know, keep my daughter safe and be an advocate for black people. You also say in the book that you yourself were like a ripple on the surface of the narrative, um, that was being told all around you because you were in the Midwest, you were, you know, can you talk a little about what that felt like and, and what, what you meant when you said that? Yeah, I think the line is, I was a ripple in an otherwise smooth sheet. They needed to iron it down. These were the questions I would get around, what are you or where are you from? And when I was very little, I didn't understand 
the heart of the question, which wasn't where are you from, but what race are you? Over the years, I would come to realize that that was the air coach polite way of saying, I don't know what race you are and I need to know because race matters. Um, so I was constantly perplexing people. Where are you from? Here. No, where are you from? From here. Um, you know, I knew I was an American. I was born overseas, but I was born to an American. And I was, you know, I, I never had my own origin around uh, my American identity questioned uh, in my, I did not question it in my own mind. Um, but people were trying to make sense of me. And boy, yeah, I can't know, Dave, what it's like to not feel problematic as a child. I came into this world problematic in the eyes of many and got those messages through their questions, through the looks on their faces, through the choices they made about me. And frankly, I think it, this isn't the question you're asking me, but I just feel the need to say, I, I care deeply about all of us. And I think my empathy comes from knowing I was problematic at the start and knowing that that wasn't fair. You should have had the opportunity to not be standing out somehow. Yeah, right. Well, that's what happens when you're a minority uh, in these United States. It's like you stand out and yet you are unseen in your individual humanity. Right. Yeah. And you say that, you know, you were hypothetically, I can't remember the exact words you used, but that you were hypothetically supported, you know, that you were, um, that there were words and sentiments out there in support of you or in support of your experience. And yet your day-to-day -day lived experience was that those stories were kind of empty, you know, that people wanted to be more welcoming than they really were. I think my uh, lived experience so far, born in 1967, post MLK, practically, he lived for six months uh, beyond my birth. I, so I, I entered a post MLK world, post Malcolm X, post civil rights movement. Um, I think um, my experience is one of millions or many, many hundreds of thousands of those of us whose existence frames the contradiction of America's ideals. So people can talk about uh, uh, liberty and justice for all and all people are created equal. And yet we know that those ideals have still not been realized. And at the level of me as an individual, I would experience the language around equality and respect for all, and yet um, have a lived experience that uh, where that was not the case. I wanna pause and say, Dave, I am a light-skinned, anybody watching can say I'm a light-skinned African-American person. I also am privileged around my socioeconomic class. I was raised middle-class. My parents both have advanced degrees. Um, I was highly educated. I am highly educated. I am upper middle-class. I'm not here to say that my black experience was typical or uh, bad in the grand scheme of things. In fact, I think that's in some ways what my story offers is it's not, it, 
there is a narrative that says, if you just work hard, if you just get educated, if you just, 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 then America will say, okay. And my stories say, no, actually there is maybe a, a little sub-brand of racism that gets incensed when you are hardworking and achieving and everything's going your way. You know, like you're ascending to these places of privilege and power. There are a whole slew of people that just think that's not right. This is a white country and you should not be. Um, and, and I think that's, that's what, what my story um, offers, that racism is agnostic to class and to the degrees you have and to who your daddy or mama is. I mean, I, I, you know, when I hear you talk about the era when you were raised, you know, we've heard so much uh, good talk about social justice recently, um, you know, racial equality. There's a lot of um, good feeling there and good intentions. And yet at the same time, I'm struck that we've heard this before and, you know, I think, I think many people felt that we had made more progress than we really had. And yeah. now we're trying to remake progress that we once thought we did. Oh, made. Yeah, beautifully put. I was, um, I've been feeling for some time that uh, we have entered a period that looks like um, the end of reconstruction where we made progress <laughs> for 12 years and then uprose the KKK and other forces that were determined to keep these newly freed black people in their place. And one of my ancestors actually, um, Joshua Wilson in South Carolina was um, postmaster general, I think in, um, uh, it was a prominent position, elected position. And he was one of those black folks who had kind of, okay, <laughs> slavery is over and we can now just be, <laughs> citizens involved in the making of this place into something better. And so I have an actual ancestor on my dad's side who's who was part of that reconstruction. And then, um, so yeah, we're very much in a rollback. Um, and let's dry, dive deeper into that. A lot of people are shocked by that. They had no idea. They had no idea someone like Donald Trump could get elected. They had no idea. Uh, neo-Nazis and white supremacists would march through a sh college town called Charlottesville, Virginia. They had no idea there would be an insurrection of almost entirely white people at the nation's capital uh, waving Confederate flags. And the naivete surrounding those, oh my gosh, is so grating. And I, I can't blame somebody. For, I mean, a person who didn't see that coming, fine. What a luxury to not have had to watch that come because I have felt it in my bones since they began demeaning Barack Obama when he was a serious candidate for president with the birtherism bullshit, right? I felt the disregard and the disparagement. Why? Because I got a, a narrative that's pretty similar to his, except I wasn't born in the United States I, as he was, right? I felt the hatred when they called him out in his first address to, you know, joint session of Congress. And that congressman from South Carolina called him a liar as he was orating. I mean, to demean the office, to disrespect the office because a black man was, I watched those bricks being laid when we began to see the evidence on video of black people, including children being shot 
by somebody and not in their killer, not being held accountable. The era we call Black Lives Matter happened under the reign of Barack Obama. You could see that while he was in many respects, the crowning achievement, the elevation of this incredible human to the highest of the, of the land was the crowning achievement of the civil rights movement. The white nationalist movement could not bear it and was rising as well, buying more guns, gathering underground and in their dark places on the web and coming back. I wrote poetry about this when I was in doing my MFA in 2000. I was doing my MFA in 2012 to 2016, but in 2013, I wrote a poem and I performed it at a club in San Francisco about this drumbeat, this, you know, the crowd coming um, because they were so unable to contemplate that in their America, uh, these black people would have um, this opportunity to lead. So we have fallen back and I'm not enough of an American historian. I'm not an historian, but I've studied a lot of American history. Still, I don't know how many loops of this there have been. I just know that if we go back to the late 1800s, um, we see echoes or today is an echo of that. And it's terrifying, but it's also such an opportunity for clarity for all of us. This is not an ambiguous moment. This is not a moment to sit on the sidelines and let other people just slug it out. Our very society is um, is not just frayed, but fractured and and really threatening to crumble. And um, so it's an urgent time. It's a time to be eyes wide open, and it requires interrogating the self. How am I showing up in conversation at Thanksgiving with my family member who talks about how those you know, Mexicans are overstaying their visas when in fact it's Canadians who overstay their visas in higher number than Mexicans, but we don't seem to care about that. You know, we have to be brave enough to take on our family and our friends and speak up because we are in a terrifying moment. I mean, it, it, you know, it makes me think about how the ability to tell the story, you know, is related to power, you know, that, that those who are in power, you know, whatever story they're telling, even if it's a pile of, you know what, you know, it's still the story. And so, and, and to tell your story is to claim some power. That's right. Which is interesting that you started to tell your story fairly, fairly recently, actually. Well, I didn't, um, I didn't think the story was meritorious. I didn't think it was, I didn't know it was a story until I began to tell its truths to myself. Somebody wrote the N-word on my locker in my all-white high school when I was 17, on my 17th birthday actually. And I didn't tell a soul because I was ashamed to be the person it had happened to. Um, I didn't speak of it again to myself until I was in my MFA at California College of the Arts here in San Francisco where I was in a poetry class and wrote a very experimental poem in seven voices and typefaces where I included this line that had been put on my locker. And it was the first time I had summoned it to consciousness between age 17 and age 44. So I am new to the telling of my story. I am new to knowing my story. Let me put it that way. I think I had just pushed it all down and tried to achieve and succeed. 
and I did the work, the psychological work to heal myself of that, to rid myself of the shame of that. And then the clarity, it's like emerging into a clearing. All of a sudden I could see like, okay, I can talk about this stuff and maybe help others. And that's my, my work now, frankly, I wrote this book to be of use to anybody who's had cause to feel the way I have. And I'm struck constantly. It happened just again last week, a younger black person in a conversation that is I'm a part of with some white folks, highly problematic in its benign racism. Just, she was being mistreated. Um, I called it out. She began to cry on this Zoom. And I said, I see you little sister. I am 20 to 30 years down the road. I have your back. I'm here for you. I said this in the presence of these white folks who were behaving in ways that were, hard for this young black woman to deal with. And I, and that is how I am trying to use the power, not just of the, whatever platform I have, but of my lived experience and my story to serve uh, those who need me to be the hand they grab in order to be pulled up and out. You, you talked in the book as well about uh, in real American about um, your brother, Stephen and how, he gave your family the gift of discovering and really researching your slave ancestor, Sylvie. Yeah, thank you. Um, how, how does that story, or how did that story kind of expand your, your view or, or deepen your view of yourself? It rooted me to place. It rooted me to America. First of all, I'm getting a little emotional because my brother died. Um, suddenly, uh, many, many years ago, 26 years ago, but I am reminded of the tragedy of his death when you mentioned his name, but I'm glad you did. Um, so Stephen's research on our ancestry and my dad's side, um, he's my half brother through my dad. We have different moms. Um, his research was conducted the old school way before there was an internet that allowed you to just pop in information and get results. He walked through graveyards. He went into county clerk's offices. He went into churches to review records. And he traced our ancestry through my father's mother back to a slave named Sylvie who lived on Church Street in Charleston in the late 1700s. And as a child, uh, Black, we have this narrative of we're all immigrants in America, which we're not. Native Americans were here first and black people did not come here by choice. And I have constantly as an adult been trying to correct that narrative. As a child, we were often asked to show the flag of our country of origin. And it's such a, it's this reinforcement that we all came from somewhere that overlooks, ignores the experience of Native Americans and the experience of African Americans. Yes, our people did come from somewhere else, but our Um, ancestry and language and culture was deliberately cut from us and erased from us. And so I don't know until recent efforts to type our DNA, DNA, I don't know the African country of my ancestors. So I claim America and um, knowing the lineage back to a slave. And we don't know whether she came across the middle passage or whether she is descended from people who did. Um, But I know I am a seventh generation American because 
I can trace myself back to Sylvie, Sylvia, Joshua, Joshua Jr., Evelyn, George, me. And I'm so proud of that. Um, and I know it's a privilege to have that information. I am so proud of it. It roots me here. It roots me back in time to people who struggled and lived long enough to give life to the people who would give life to the people who had me. I'm planning to get my first and maybe only tattoo on my right forearm, uh-huh. uh, which would be the fist I would hold up of their names so that I carry them with me on my body, mm-hmm. on the outside, as I do on the inside. That's so cool. Um, you know, one of the things that struck me over and over in Real American was how your hair kept recurring as, you know, almost a character in the book. It's a motif um, for sure. Yep. And, you know, as, as you were growing up, your mother didn't really understand how to, <laughs> how to deal with your hair because she had no experience. And, you know, you as a mom um, wanted to get it right for your daughter. I remember you using that phrase or something like that. Yeah. But that also, also your hair figures into a number of the really kind of harrowing incidents you went through, like one where you were in a meeting at Stanford and, you know, one of the white women in the room reached out to touch your hair and as, as kind of a power grab, you know, to silence you in a way. And you really called her on it. Um, so how do, you, how do you feel like your hair has evolved in a way in your own perception, if that makes any sense? How, how is this? Absolutely. It's beautiful um, to be asked this question by a white man. So um, with curiosity and kindness and tenderness, I appreciate it. Because a lot of people will say, what hair doesn't matter. Why is that important? Um, black hair has been regarded as so problematic through the centuries. Um, uh, and and it, how we are perceived against Western forms of beauty impacts our sense of self um, as non-Western origin people. Um, And certainly as a black biracial kid growing up in white spaces, in a time when there were not products that would allow me to tame my curls a little bit, I had, it's funny because I very consciously, since this is being videoed, I can tell you like my, I have to use leave-in conditioner if I want my curls to kind of do this ringlety thing. And I deliberately did that this morning. It's not dry yet, so I shouldn't be touching it. Um, because my hair was really sort of, uh, I'll say untamed or didn't have product in it. So it was very fluffy and fuzzy. And I thought, oh, I don't want to be on this on this podcast, you know, with my hair looking that way. I think I want to show up a little bit more like this. But um, this natural state with a little bit of leave-in conditioner is um, is my hair. Whereas for through into my early thirties, I was straightening this hair constantly with an iron to try to make it match the beauty standards and really the professional air quote standards in law where I was uh, employed as a lawyer um, in higher education. I, in my schooling, you know, it was clear that my hair needed to be straight. I was treated better in stores when my hair was straight. You know, these are the tiny data points that help construct a sense of self. Um, so as I became more self-loving in my body, it, with my ancestry, my parentage, 
I became a person who could wear my hair as it comes, as it was given to me. And um, I think that's a beautiful thing. I'm not saying that people who straighten their, that all people who straighten their hair aren't self-loving. I'm just saying I wasn't. And um, I so admire how um, black women command their hair and make it do all kinds of glorious things. And I happen to be someone who goes natural. Um, my natural coils have been this long, but my hair began thinning in my fifties. The agony I've experienced at having denied myself an appreciation of the hair God gave me or the universe gave me, my ancestors gave me only to finally live with it and celebrate it. And then to have it leave me had I known it's one of those things if I'd only known it would I would lose it or it would thin and I wouldn't be able to you know I wish I would have appreciated it sooner and um now I'm putting collagen uh in my <laughs> smoothies to try to um help my hair grow because I I I honor it I'm grateful for it and I'm proud of it and I could not have said that when I was a kid a teenager or a young adult uh, I want to uh, talk to you as well about uh, the book you have behind you, Your Turn, um, which is such a wonderful book, Thank you. Um, where you just deal with all kinds of topics about you know, the basics of being an adult in this world. Um, and it, it struck me reading that after reading Real American, that you seemed so unsure of yourself in so much of Real American, you know, that you you were looking for your identity, you were looking for acceptance, and you turned around and you wrote a book about how to be yourself, how to be an adult, you know, and, and with so much confidence and, and knowledge. I wonder if there was some switch that was flicked there, or how did that, how did that happen? I think it's rather the case that it's easy to tell other people <laughs> uh, <laughs> the right way to be. It's easy to offer the right advice sound good, clear advice to others often, um, but hard to be an, an advocate for that within the self. So I was a college dean at Stanford working with undergraduates in the continual effort of becoming their adult selves, making the right choices, making the choices that were right for them. I was a, an advisor constantly talking with young people who were abutting other people's expectations about right and wrong and what's worthy and not by way of academic or career pursuits or identities. So I was in the space of rooting for all of these other people to figure themselves out and caring about the extent to which that happened and wanting to support and be there when they fell and, and, and hold space for that and root for them to keep going. So I think what happened is Real American was born, was possible for me as a creative work, probably, I mean, I was doing the work to learn to love and accept myself as I was counseling a set of people, a generation younger than me to do the same. I knew it was valid and important. It was easy to be someone else's support, but ultimately I became able to do it within myself. So the turnaround between the publication of Real American 20. 17 and your turn 2021 it's like four years later she can now give advice to everybody what i really i knew what was right all along i just couldn't apply it to myself 
And something you've done recently, uh, which I think is really fascinating and, re and wonderful is, is you've given people uh, sort of a space to share their stories with you, stuff that's going on with them. Um, really feels like you're trying to give everybody room to be affirmed. I mean, do you want to talk a little about what that's been like? Absolutely. Thanks for knowing that. I'm, I'm newly writing um, in an online space I call Julie's Pod. Um, it comes with a little sticker. <laughs> I offer this to anyone who follows me there, this little <laughs> sticker that you can put on your laptop. And it's an online space where I write. Um, and maybe we can put the link to that in the show notes, jlithcotthams.bulletin.com. It's kind of a mouthful, but I write my about my observations uh, there. I write roughly weekly and I invite people to comment wherever they're reading it. But I also know not everyone is comfortable publicly commenting. So I created this phone number, which is so old school and throwback. And I'm having I, my eyes lit up when you began to allude to it because it brings me joy. I've got this phone, which is <laughs> my college dorm room phone. I mean, what nostalgia for all of us who are Gen X and boomers and above, right? It's one eight seven seven hi julie And for those who want to vent, want to share what's on their minds without being public about it and attaching their name to it, all they have to do is call that number. I listen and I report back out every Monday at noon on my Facebook live, uh, the calls I, I report, I don't reveal anybody's identity. I keep their identity protected and private, but I, I summarize the call and then I share my thoughts and I am very much trying to create and hold space for us to share what we feel. I'm very interested in us all removing the, the mask, um, stepping away from the performance of life, um, pulling down the facades, all of the things that stand between us and other humans. Because mm -hmm. I know from the work of Brene Brown and others, how vital it is and how growth inducing it is when we can be vulnerable and dare to say, you know what, this is what's going on. This is how I feel. This is what happened. This is what I did. And, and to, we discover we're not alone. We are able to be more tightly in community with one another when we share. So I'm trying to make it possible for people to feel comfortable sharing. I, I try to model that in my storytelling um, and I'm trying to make space for others. Thank you so much, Julie. I really appreciate your time today. And Thank you so much for having me. It flew, Dave. Thank you. And thanks to everyone who listened with us. Thank you.